This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Ed Bastian. Ed is a Buddhist scholar, teacher, and filmmaker. He is president of the Spiritual Paths Foundation, an organization which provides retreats, classes, and advanced programs on interfaith studies, as well as the co-author of the Sounds True book, Living Fully, Dying Well, Reflecting on Death to Find Your Life's Meaning. I spoke with Ed about what he calls the gift of death, what science tells us about consciousness outside the body, and the transformation that comes in our life when we face death full on. Okay, Ed, let's talk about dying. Great. Now I know. Now imagine when saying something like that, listeners might think, come on, I don't want to talk about dying. I want to talk about living. And yet, in your work, you make this direct connection between reflecting on dying and living fully. And I wonder if we can start right there. For you, what's the relationship between full living and contemplating our dying? Uh, Tammy, I wish I had a good one-liner for you. You know, like the, that sometimes people say, well, what's the book about? And they say, you know, you need an elevator speech on this. You need something that you can walk in and make people see it, you know, get it in a couple lines. And uh, and occasionally I've worked on a couple lines to do that, but then I always forget what they were. And so I, I feel like in order to, to do that, it, it takes some unpacking and some conversation, which I'm sure, which I trust we're going to be able to do. But I think that as from personally, and I hope this doesn't sound uh, pretentious or overstating it, some grandiose way, like trying to sell something or make a pitch. Or, but through my process, uh, with my own, uh, the, the first case, well, I guess in a sense I did die technically. The second time I was really close to it, they said I was going to. And so I was able to put a lot of my own effort into, you know, my preparation. Uh, now I feel really grateful. And I feel that death, as we, you know, that word death is something for which I am really grateful. And because it has helped me to focus attention on living every day, every moment, every hour, and to living fully in, in all ways that we can unpack that word of, of fully. And... I don't think that I would have had that experience without looking at, without being, I guess, having death uh, affect me so personally and then having such a positive experience, you know, with it and after it, such that now I can say, it's, you know, let's say love and gift, love and death are the greatest gifts of our life and most of us leave them unopened. And I've learned, maybe even more than love, 
uh, about opening the gift of death. Now, now, what do you mean by that, opening the gift of death? And then also, Ed, if you can tell us a little bit, you, you said when you died, meaning you had a near-death experience? Yes, I did. And it gave the rationale for me personally to do a major program in Aspen as part of our Spiritual Paths Foundation on the subject of dying. And, um, and But I had had an experience the year before, or, or several years before, uh, completely unexpected. I walked into the house on a winter night in Woody Creek, Colorado, where I was living, and I walked into the house with a dear friend of mine after a meeting that we were having with our community, and we cracked open a couple of beers and started to talk, and I put my foot inside a slipper, and I got stung by one of those winter dormant wasps that, that sometimes we see crawling around windowsills in the, in the winter trying to get the heat of the sun. And I just thought nothing of it because I'd been stung before and never had had any adverse reaction to it. But as it turned out, in about seven minutes, I was gone. And my friend um, called 911, and 911, you know, rushed out. My neighbor, uh, the late author Hunter Thompson, uh, heard about it over the police radio from my friend the sheriff, and he ran up and tried to save my life by giving me mouth-to-mouth respiration and pounding on me, and uh, none of that worked. And luckily, the EMT got there, and they were able to bring me back to life. So that was uh, that was my wake-up call. And so from that experience, you're now able to say something like, death had a gift for you. Yes. And, and, I mean, I understand the idea that now, you know, you relish more each moment of being alive. But is it more than that for you? Yeah, I know. I I sort of recognize when I was saying that it may, may have sounded a little trite because you hear people saying that. It's more than that in the sense that, uh, well, it's the, the other things that sound trite, w- which were also true for me. Uh, I was, it, especially after these, this experience and the one after it, I was so much more in the moment, each moment of my living. I was, I was so much more empathic with other people. I was, uh, I had a more natural kind of compassion that I used to meditate on and pray for and wish that I had. It seemed to be more spontaneous. Um, I was doing things like being on time for meetings. Now that it is a miracle. really, really mundane. But I, I think I, I, I became more interested in other people. Um, and, uh, and so that was part of living fully, is that I felt that I, uh, I related to people on a much different level after that. Now, you mentioned after this near-death experience that you had some kind of second experience with death. Can you describe yeah. what that was? Well, yes. Um, after the first one, uh, and then shortly after that experience, I sold my business. It was that kind of wake-up call. I said, okay, you've created a business. It was an Internet company. It's time you need to move back into your main passion of your life, which is the subject of spirituality. And because years before that, I had done my doctorate in Buddhist studies and had been, you know, working on Buddhism as my primary 
spiritual formation for many, many years. And then when I moved back to Colorado from from Washington, D.C., I needed to make a living in the mountains. And uh, and so it became the Internet business, which was sort of at the beginning of that, the, the growth of that industry. And uh, so after my death experience, I realized I needed to get back to my primary purpose of life and passion, and that had to do with spirituality and, and uh, transformation. And so I started the foundation. And then uh, one of our early programs was on this this subject because I needed to learn more about it now. And uh, so we invited great teachers uh, who are in the book, you know, Rabbi Zalman Schachter and, uh, and uh, Dr. Ira Bayak, who's the, the leader of the palliative hospice care movement in the United States, and Mother Tessa Balecki and um, Joan Halifax and... And, uh, and myself and Tina Staley, my co- the co-author of the book. And I learned so much from that conference because they were talking about, uh, and we called the conference Living Fully. And uh, so they unpacked the dying experience for each of them personally and according to their specific faith traditions as to how do their traditions look at this and what do they do as individuals within that tradition uh, to prepare themselves for dying and to live, you know, as fully through the dying process, consciously through the dying process, as part of their spiritual practice. And um, so I, I had that wonderful opportunity to be with them. We we recorded the talks, we transcribed the talks, we began editing the talks, and then uh, I had my second experience uh, a year later after a ski accident up in um, Ashcroft above Aspen, just a simple little mundane fall, and uh, fell backwards on my cross-country skis, hit something very hard, and broke my hip. And that turned into you know an operation, and then uh, the operation uh, spun off blood clots into my lungs, unbeknownst to me. And when we were doing one of our spiritual past programs in Santa Barbara, uh, where, where I'm talking to you from now, uh, I was rushed to the hospital with a pulmonary embolism. And the doc, you know, in the in the waiting room, in the uh, emergency room, they gave me, you know, the CAT scan or whatever it was, and he said, you know, you've got you've got huge clots uh, just in the worst place they could possibly be in your lungs. And I was in such pain I could barely breathe. And he says, it's, there's a really good chance that we're not going to be able to save you because they're just in the very worst place. We're going to give you morphine. We're going to give you blood thinners, and we're just going to have to hope for the best. Because if they go to the wrong place, I, there's nothing I can do. So, you know, at that point, I had had not only my first death experience, but then my preparation through our conference, you know, that the book is about. And uh, and that, that really helped me then to, I would say, live fully through that second experience. And uh, it was a very, very profound experience. Uh, very profound experience for me, and I, I think that added to the gift of it. Mm-hmm. This idea that someone might want to be prepared for their moment of death, what, what do you think creates that kind of preparation? What do we need to be prepared for? Well, I think there are different, you know, different views on that. What do we need to be prepared for? I mean, we, we need to be prepared for a sudden death that we have no control over. 
when we have no consciousness and we just are gone, bam. We need to be prepared for dying in our sleep. We need to be prepared for a long illness, a diagnosis. Uh, we need to be prepared for the pain. We need to be prepared for the fear. We need to be prepared for uh, the loneliness and the sadness at the loss of our loved ones and their loss of us, since if we have kids or others that depend on us, that we won't be there to help them. Um, we need to be prepared for the last moments when uh, when we're taking our last breaths and, and, and prepared with our mind, let's say from a spiritual perspective, what are we going to be doing internally during that whole process? And what are we going to be doing internally at that last moment? And, and again, how are we going to be living fully up to and through the experience of, our, of the end of our own life? Well, as you offered that list, I thought, wow, that's a lot of preparation <laughs> for all of those different possible scenarios. Yeah, there is. And I think a lot of us uh, I've now, since having done that conference in our book and speaking about it and doing conferences on it and being involved with hospice workers and palliative care workers, who, by the way, are just the most remarkable community of people that I've ever met, that, you know... There is one school of thought, which is to help people prepare for the end of their life, to imagine the perfect scenario for their dying, and to project that scenario, to have that positive thinking, that you can, you can create the perfect ending. So as, as a kind of a therapy, people would do that with somebody who has a diagnosis, which, is, which you know says they might have a month, a year, or whatever to live. And so you'll hear these wonderful stories, how they're going to be in a beautiful bedroom, soft lights, pictures of family around them, flowers, soft breeze coming through the bedroom, uh, beautiful music, uh, loving touch and care of kids and everybody with us. And so that's a lovely picture that we would all like to paint in some way. But the reality is that, you know, that, that doesn't happen probably in the majority cases of people uh, at the end of their life. So many people are in the hospital and they're hooked up to machines. Um, so many people are, have not been able to create that perfect scenario. So the task then is to prepare ourselves internally so that we can get the most that we can possibly get out of that situation and that experience. And that's in, that internal preparation is something that is best begun while we're healthy and we have ex access to great teachings and teachers and books. And that if we engage in that practice early in our life, in that preparation, then we're able to look, actually in a way, look forward to the end. Because we have something, we have a grand adventure. We have something that, we, that is really important. We have something that's really meaningful. We have something to give us hope, you know, to give us a job to do as we get down towards the end. Where do you think hope comes from in the process of facing our death, preparing for our death? 
me, hope is 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 intertwined with confidence, and I think our confidence is also intertwined with our spiritual beliefs, our metaphysical beliefs, that which we think happens during the end of life and what happens next. And so I think that whether you're a Christian or a Jew or a Native American or Buddhist or Hindu or whatever you happen to be, uh, or if you've read the scientific literature about what happens to consciousness after death, you begin to get the sense, both from a scientific perspective and from reports of people who have come back and from our spiritual traditions, that life just is going to go on and that our death is just a, just another birth. It's just a doorway that we're passing through. Um, it's a transition point. So I think our hope is tied to the confidence that we have that that's true. And our hope is tied to the, I would say, the logic that what happens after we pass through that doorway of death is going to follow the same laws of goodness, of compassion, and happiness that we experience in this life. So that if we have lived our life in a good way, if we've been kind, if we've been compassionate, if we've uh, achieved some measure of wisdom, if we've been able to immerse ourselves in prayer or meditation uh, and found that solace and that that uh, realization, then I think the the end of life is is something that's that's just imbued with great hope, you know, and uh, and almost to the extent of of uh, of great anticipation. Now, Ed, just uh, as a personal favor here for a moment, yes. I'm curious if you can address my 83 year old mother. My 83-year-old Jewish mother believes that when she dies, it will just be like the lights are out, and that's that. Mm-hmm. And I think if I said to her, well, Mom, there's scientific perspectives on consciousness, there's logic, there's the faith that comes from prayer, she would say, no, Tammy, actually, what I know from my experience is that it's just lights out. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a very prevalent attitude in our culture. And I think it's, you know, I found it a lot among uh, Jewish people, perhaps of your mother's generation, that Rabbi, you know, that Zalman Schachter uh, addresses. That, uh, and I hope I'm not speaking out of turn or too freely, but with the acculturation of Jewish people in, in America and after the Holocaust, that some of the, just the most profound and wonderful uh, traditions of Judaism around end of life um, and spiritual transformation uh, were, were a bit lost. And there's been a renaissance of those traditions in the last 40 years. But some of the folks of the previous generation just didn't get that. And uh, so I know that I have many friends just like your mom. I totally empathize with it. But, of course, she doesn't know that really, because she hasn't done it. So she doesn't really have empirical knowledge, but I don't know. Why, I have to ask you, why do you think people find solace in that? 
or somebody like your mom could just say that and I don't think I don't think there's solace in it. I think she thinks she's being a realist. What I'm wondering is, from your work with all of these different luminaries from different traditions, and then as well, you, you mentioned that they're scientific studies. H- how can you counter that rationalist's perspective? Well, in our conference and in our book, we tried to counter it a bit with the with the evidence presented by Marilyn Schlitz who's the, now the president of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, uh, whose institution has been at the forefront of, of collecting, at least anecdotally, all these different stories and working with professors and scientists uh, from around the country and around the world who have a lot of evidence that, that consciousness uh, survives bodily death. Can you tell me what that evidence is? Well, for example, there's, what's his name, Stevenson, University of Virginia, reports on a doctor who was doing, and this is, he had done the interviews uh, with this doctor, with interviews with this patient, um, had all the the reports that took place during the the, the operation of a woman who uh, had a a really severe, I think a brain tumor or something that was was verging on aneurysm. I'm I'm not going to give the right technical terms. And in order to uh, operate on the brain, they had to remove the patient's uh, blood. And they had to stop the patient's heart from beating. They basically had to shut down the body. And so they did that. And so this person's body temperature, I think, decreased to something like 60 degrees. There was no heart. And on the EEG, there was nothing going on in the brain during that period. They cut open her skull, they did the operation, they put her blood back in her, they got her heart going again, and, uh, and then she reported uh, very soon after the operation everything that had happened during that operation. She was a musician, she reported on the, the key of the saw that was cutting into her skull. She reported on the music, on the voices, on, the, on everything that had happened during the course of that operation. And um, and the only explanation could have been that she had that there was consciousness that had survived. This this had to be a bodily death, right? All the signs of death were there. No brain activity, no heart activity. Um, so that's one example, and there are dozens of those kinds of examples that have been documented and written about. What has personally given you this sense of confidence or hope? in what will happen when you die, from your own experience? I wish I could say that it was my first instance of dying, because I have friends who have had these marvelous stories to tell, that they die and they, and they have the white light in the tunnel, and they go through the tunnel, and all these incredible things happen. And then they decide that, well, it's for whatever reason, they got to stay in their body and come back in. There's, you know, there's all kinds of variations on those stories. And when I died, that didn't happen to me. I experienced blackness, which is different than no consciousness. And so later, of course, I felt really cheated by this because everybody else had had these grand experiences, and, and all I had was this blackness. 
and uh, so I began to look back into my Tibetan book, you know, Book of the Dead and various sources. And, and so I, they describe consciousness of blackness just before the white light appears. <laughs> so I took solace in that. I said, okay, well, at least I had the blackness. But that wasn't that convincing, but, it, you know, at least it was something. I think it's just my, uh, my aesthetic, my experience in life in general, you know, with the, mir- the miracles of life, my experience with the regeneration of life, with, with the way in which the body works and the, 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 the death and, and regeneration of cells, with the fact that our bodies are, you know, full of five trillion uh, living organisms, most of which are not even our human human cells, uh, that just the miracle of life and what I see all around me all the time. And, and I guess also, without being presumptuous or pretentious about it, I guess my own experiences in meditation uh, give me the confidence that, you know, what we see every day through our physical senses, that what we call empirical reality through the five senses is uh, not the whole story and that I feel something deeply and I experience something deeply through an inner sense that gives me the confidence that um, there's a continuation. In the work that you did with Spiritual Paths, where you were talking to people from many different traditions, rabbis and contemplative leaders, did you discover areas of agreement and disagreement about the afterlife? Uh, I was surprised to hear Zalman Schachter talking about purgatory, as he, you know, this great soul-washing experience that goes on. And he quoted scripture, uh, he quoted Jewish sources, uh, and he said that it's very much in their tradition that when the, when the soul passes from the body, it goes through this process uh, of this purging, of this looking back, and if you've done things which... Uh, weren't good, that you have the chance to uh, redeem yourself, that there is the possibility of, of uh, atonement. And he didn't speak of it in the sense that there's a, that God is going to let you in or not let you in based on this experience. He spoke about it more as a personal cleaning up of one's consciousness experience. We see that in the Christian notions uh, of purgatory, you know, when there's that in-between state. Uh, we see it in, you know, obviously in Hindu traditions, uh, of the in-between state between this incarnation and the next incarnation. And, of course, we see it in the Buddhist traditions, which are very articulate on the subject. So that w- I found a lot in common there from all these different traditions. Um, I think that there are some differences regard to what's next, what's the nature of the of the life after. Uh, Literal interpretations of Christianity would have it that we could either go to heaven or hell, and we go to heaven, we'll have our same looking bodies, and we're going to be, you know, in this heavenly situation. In Buddhism, of course, uh, there's an infinite number of possibilities after this life, and the kind of body that we manifest depends on our karma and the quality of our consciousness. But I'd say there, too, there's a great similarity, because it's the quality of the life that we live that determines, uh, the, you know, the next life. So I think that all, all religious traditions, including Native American traditions, agree on that point. 
Mm-hmm. Now, I know in the book, Living Fully, Dying Well, there's a, a, a section in the back of the book that involves different kinds of practices, both to prepare for death, but also practices that you could do at the bedside of someone who's dying. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. I know that when we have someone in our life who might be entering the dying process, there's often a desire to be helpful in some way, to help Mm -hmm. that person's crossing. What do you know about that? What helps in those kinds of situations? I think, you know, in the back of the book, as you mentioned, there are lots of uh, examples given and uh, instructions and prayers and meditations, poems, um, ideas that our teachers are giving to the reader about how they can approach being with people, with their loved ones and others uh, at the time of death. But I think one of the most profound uh, statements of of all came from Joan Halifax uh, when she described her process. She said when, when she, then Joan, of course, is a Buddhist Roshi, and she has quite a profound practice herself, and has dedicated herself to working with people near the end of their lives and through the end of their life. And she said that if she's going to somebody's house, that she will, before she goes in the house, she'll drive up and she'll park the car in the driveway and she'll sit there for a few minutes. And she will do a meditation to herself and a kind of prayer to herself that may I just be with this person in as deep a way as I possibly can. May I not feel that I need to teach them something or that I need to lead them in something. May I be able to deeply respond to the needs as they're presented to me. And may I be with them in the most deepest and most profound way possible. And because we have the capacity as individuals to respond in that situation. We may not know that we do. We may not have the confidence that we do. We're often afraid to be around somebody who's dying, fearful and sad that we're going to lose it when, if we're around somebody that we love and we want to be strong. And if we're around people, we want to counsel them or give them something to hold on to, give them something to do. But the wisest advice, I think, is to, from what Joan was talking about, which is just deeply enter into a kind of meditative state with that person where you have the confidence that what is needed will arise within you to help the person when they need that. And of course, depending on the spiritual tradition of that person, you know, there may be really specific things to do. You know, there may be the need of a priest or a priestess or, uh, or, or somebody to be with the person near the end of their life to engage them with a certain kind of prayer or meditation or passing over kind of tradition. There may be the need for a Buddhist Lama to come in and to chant the Book of the Dead to help lead the person through the bardo uh, to the next stage. Uh, there will be specific traditions, with you know, uh, practices in each tradition that I think we can engage a person that we love, that we know ahead of time, and talk to them about what those things are. And then as their friends, we can make sure that those things happen. Because somebody really has to, to has to do that for the dying person. Somebody has to 
make sure that those wishes are carried out. And, you know, that gives us a, a, con- a constructive job, mm-hmm. you know, something that we can really do to help. But it's that openness. I think it's that depth of being with somebody that is the beginning point. Yeah, that, that's a beautiful answer. What also occurs to me is you, you, you mentioned this idea of confidence or hope, that it's possible to face our death with that kind of attitude. And yet I know uh, many people, even just the, the word death or dying, let alone the idea of facing their own death, what comes up is a feeling of fear. Mm-hmm. A- and I'm curious how you would address that and what you learned through your work with these different spiritual luminaries about how to address the fear that most people feel as part of the dying process? Well, fear is just absolutely natural. I think uh, almost anybody, uh, whether they're a serious spiritual practitioner or not, would own up to some level of fear. So the fear is um, is going to be there. It's the fear of the unknown. It's the fear of the pain. It's the fear of loss of loved ones. It's the fear of uh, of not being in control. It's the fear of of uh, you know all those fear of loss, all those things. And so fear is just really natural. So I think in the beginning it's just it's extremely important just to acknowledge it and uh, and uh, to admit it because uh, it's the most human reaction that we would have. Um, you know, fear is, of course, uh, important because it, it moves us into action. That if we're afeared of, afraid of the kind of things I was just mentioning, that then we will take on a kind of practice or an internal attitude um, that will help help um, alleviate that fear, alleviate the causes of that fear as we're going through the experience. So the best way to alleviate the fear is to engage, uh, I think that's the point of the book, to engage in a, in a kind of a spiritual practice. So I think, you know, to admit the fear is just honest. It's just where it's at. And, and for people to say that their practice or their process eliminates the fear of dying i think that you know if they're they're they can it can be ameliorated but not totally totally removed so you know i think it's uh, being with the fear and the transformation of that fear into something which is uh which is hopeful and which is proactive is the key for all of us mm-hmm. yeah i mean what you're pointing to is turning towards the fear and engaging it and then having that take you into transformative practice versus saying, I'm afraid, so let's not talk about it. Right. And people, in a sense, I think your friends or when we, or we need to acknowledge it and, and if possible, I mean, everybody's going to have their own experience of dying and we can't really, we cannot manipulate the process. We cannot make it go the way we want it to go for ourselves or anybody else. We can have more control of ourselves, but we can't do it for other people. Um, so some people, at some point in the process, will be open to talking about the fear that they have, and that's that's a great opening. It's a great opportunity. It's a gift. 
when that subject comes up and they're willing to to really go into it. I'm curious, Ed, in, in all of the research and the work that you did in preparing the book, Living Fully, Dying Well, the conference gatherings of the Spiritual Paths organization and the interviews and transcriptions, what you learned that really surprised you? I was really surprised at how many people came to our conference. (laughs) You know, I thought, okay, we're going to spend all this money and time and everything to organize a conference, and because it's on the end of life, we, we, we used the word end of life, we didn't use the word death, you know, I was scared to use the word death. I thought, well, people hear the word death, there's no way they're going to show up. And when we held it, and this is an Aspen, you know, where you think, well, if there's any place in the world people are going to avoid thinking about death, it's Aspen. We had our biggest program we've ever had. We had, you know, in a, in a chapel, a beautiful chapel in Aspen, uh, which is really meant for maybe 150 people, kind of max, we had several hundred people in our evening sessions. During the day, we were just we were over we were overbooked. People came; they were they were it was answering something that they really needed to address in their lives. So, I was very surprised by that. Were you surprised by anything else more from a sort of personal learning standpoint? Well, I think I'm I'm kind of surprised about how I've evolved in the process. I mean, I was just a regular guy, you know, in my own past and didn't want to think about death and uh, certainly wasn't going to acknowledge it. And I was had a more manly attitude is that I don't need to think about that. I don't need to deal with it. So I do identify with lots of men just don't. I totally get that because I've been that way myself. Or maybe like your mom, you know, if I'm just going to, I'm, I'm not, you know, I just don't think there's an answer for it. I think there's no way we're going to know. I'm going to be skeptical and cynical about it, so I'm not going to even address the issues. I've been there. So I'm, I'm surprised at the way my life has evolved through that process of dying. I'm surprised at the person I ended up being, given who I was before. I've never, I've never thought about that before I said it. But Can you describe for us a little bit about how you're different? Maybe you can hear it in my voice. (laughs) Um, Or maybe you'd have to ask other people. But um, I think probably the the heart of it is the word empathy. And um, to be fully empathic, and I don't want to overstate it to make it sound like I'm blowing myself out of proportion here, but I think that capacity to be uh, as fully as possible empathic with the human, with other human beings, with other beings, with other life, uh, to be able to feel their pain, their suffering, to be moved to want to do something about it at the, in the deepest way possible. Um, I'm surprised at that, and I can't say that I'm like that all the time, but I'm a hell of a lot more like that than I was ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Ed, for yeah. for saying that. It's, it's beautiful. So I think that's a gift. You know, when we deal with a subject and we go into it and uh, and we really take it on, I think that's the greatest gift that we can receive, you know, is that level of compassion that we might come out of it with. And I think that gives people a deeper sense of happiness and well-being and contentment uh, than they would have had had they not opened up to it, 
have they not accepted and opened the gift of death in their lives? Now, a, a final question, Ed, which is, it seems that in our Western culture that death is the kind of topic, as I said, that you know not everybody wants to spend a bunch of time talking about or engaging in. And yet in other cultures, and I know you've traveled quite a bit in India and other countries, death is, is more out in the open and not as much of a taboo in terms of people engaging with looking at corpses or, or, or things like that. And what's your vision of what death in America could be like if we had a more transformative way of working with death, a more open way? What would it be like? How would we be different as a culture? Well, I, you know, I had a, just a wonderful walk on the beach uh, two days ago here uh, with a remarkable doctor, Michael Carney, who's the head of hospice and palliative care in Santa Barbara. And we were talking just about the same subject, and uh, is that when people are, are in crisis, whether it's uh, a death a crisis that they might be, you know, a diagnosis that you you know you're going to die, or a serious illness, uh, or something catastrophic happens so that we're, you know, laying in the hospital. All of those are the greatest opportunities for transformation. That we are when we are in that state of crisis, it's the, in a sense it is just a tremendous gift. Because that's an opportunity we have to, to reevaluate our lives and to open up to new possibilities. And I think one of the, to me, one of the tragedies of the American experience is that uh, we equate that kind of tr- tragedy and ill health and pain with, um, with unhappiness in the sense that we feel like we will be happy and fulfilled if we're not in pain or if we're not sick if we don't have things happen to us. And so that one-to-one equation between happiness and health, to me, is, uh, is the biggest mistake, that the seeds of our happiness are more deeply rooted within our consciousness, within our capacity to be compassionate and wise and self-giving and serving of others uh, and being more spiritually attuned. Um, those, to me, are the sustainable causes of happiness. Our health is not because we're all going to go through moments of bad health and, of course, death. So there are a lot of folks that are laying in hospitals, that are laying in hospices, that are laying in wherever they are, that do not have somebody to work with them to help them unpack this, to unwrap this, and to see this as a great opportunity. And we have a medical system that, that does everything it can to keep you alive, and many doctors, not all, who feel their job is to keep you alive at any cost, but are not able to deal with you on the deeper human levels, that, that, this, that your sickness is a great opportunity uh, to, to explore. But what I'm saying is, is very difficult to accomplish because the medical establishment, the way it's set up financially and the training and so forth, uh, makes it very hard to do this. But this is what I would like to see consciously changed. Mm-hmm. Very good. Ed Bastian is the co-author, along with Tina Staley, of a book from Sounds True called Living Fully, Dying Well, Reflecting on Death to Find Your Life's Meaning. And it includes contributions from Rabbi Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi, 
Joan Halifax, Tessa Bielecki, Mirabai Starr, Marilyn Schlitz, and many others. And Ed, it's just been wonderful talking with you and getting a little feeling of what the last decade of your life has been and the changes you've gone through, and and really your encouragement for all of us to to look at the gift of death. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Tammy, and thank you for your, your wonderful questions. Thank you. For Sounds True, this is Tammy Simon, SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.